when you love something it's not work anymore so if you're working 12 hours or 18 hours you're working yourself you know to the bone that is where stress and everything else kicks in but when you love what you do then you never work a single day in your life live in the now the now is all that you have tomorrow is a dream yesterday is already gone the only control you have over your life over everything that you do is in now Vijay Azran is the executive chairman of the QI group of companies. Born in Penang on 7th of October 1960 to hard-working parents, Vijay had a childhood filled with moves around his native Malaysia. His education brought him to the UK and in 1984 Azran graduated from LSE with a degree in socio-economics. But it wasn't until 1998 that Azran returned to Malaysia after several years of work that stretched globally that he co-founded the multi-level marketing company that has grown into what we now know as the QI Group. The QI Group of companies describe themselves as a diversified multinational entity catering to varied businesses that include education, hospitality, direct selling, financial services and retail. Vijay would be forgiven for stopping once achieving this conglomerate. However, he has now also gone on to establish the Rhythm Foundation, the Vijay Ratnam Foundation, which is named after his father, and he's also written several books, including his thoughts and reflections. One of his books is a collection of his photography. These remarkable accomplishments are but a few, so I'm thrilled to have the fantastic guest with us today, and we can find out how all of this came about, can't we, Vijay? Absolutely. Fantastic. How are you doing? Absolutely great. Wonderful. Yeah, where have you been this morning? You've come across town, you said. Exactly. It's, and it's been quite a ride actually. Uh, it brought back a lot of memories. I I used to ride a cab in this area, so. That's hilarious. Really, what a black cab. Yes, incidentally. We're back in the 80s. And so apparently black taxi drivers have a very unique brain. So uh, I think that's a very befitting uh, compliment to you before we even start, but apparently it's a very small percentage of people in the world that could be a black cab driver. They do pride themselves uh, on that. Uh, way back then, used to be called the knowledge. Yeah. And acquiring knowledge took a little bit of skill because it wasn't just an oral exam or a written exam. It was also a physical exam. So all of which entailed um, quite a bit of swatting in a different way, if you like. And now you probably just got in the car and saw people use Uber and felt sick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to start with a quick fire round, just quick answers, just to get to know our guests. So, England. Or Malaysia? Malaysia. I thought so. That was a terrible question. What I really mean to say is London or Kuala Lumpur. Even then, it would be Kuala Lumpur because um, Malaysia is home. But uh, London too is uh, home to me in many ways. Home away from home. Absolutely. Okay, speeches or books? Books. Photos or film? Film. Degree or university of life? I would have said degree for a long while in my life, but today I would say University of Life. Okay, just uh, delving into that a little bit more. What's, what's the reason on reflection? Well, I basically grew up in a very traditional, orthodox kind of uh, upbringing, and a degree was a, a requirement. It was actually, I would say, the threshold of being accepted in society and community and family. Therefore, uh, even to the kids today, I mean, I I would say to them, get a degree. But the degree today to me is, you know, sadly out of place. There's a major disconnect that's happening. We have universities that were designed in the 19th century that are filled with teachers who have been trained in the 20th century trying to prepare students for the 21st century. It's a major disconnect. So the kids actually come out more unprepared than anything else to face life. Today I would say the University of Life is actually where it's at. and of course people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates proved the point. I think a lot of entrepreneurs would agree with you on that. So to the next point, entrepreneur or philanthropist? Entrepreneur first. Okay. Which by the way is the name of a company of one of our guests who runs a company called Entrepreneur First. So that's a good plug for them. You're trapped on a desert island and you can bring three things. What are they? And let's just assume that your family's already there. Ah, that's nice. It makes it a lot easier. It does. because I would have gone wine women in song uh, but I, I, I so now you're just going to go for earplugs the TV <laughs> actually yes music I cannot live without books absolutely got to have them and uh if I'm going to be brutally honest about this then I'll say a nice single malt would go along okay what's your well. single malt of choice today it's japanese most inspirational person in the world to you mahatma gandhi person you wish you could meet the most but let's assume that you've already met Mahatma Gandhi in this scenario well if i could go back in time it would be mandela 
I was uh, just shy of 20 feet from him during the World Cup in South Africa. It's about as close as I got. But Mandela would be certainly up there among the people that I want to meet. Mm. I have 200 questions for him. I just came out of Horace's conference in that was just held in Portugal in Kashkais and very, very fortunate enough to have met a gentleman called Mac Maharaj who spent 20 years with Mandela as his cellmate. That's amazing. And it is totally amazing. What luck. <laughs> <laughs> in a roundabout way, anyway. Or what not luck. Anyway, that's one of those, it depends what side of the coin you're on. Let's go for your story instead, which hopefully has kept you out of jail for 20 years. From taxi driver to founder and executive chairman of one of the most successful Asian conglomerates, your story isn't exactly so typical. So was your path always mapped out in your head or did you just fall into business? Well, I would start off by saying uh, there are no flaws in the master plan. There's always been an urge to be an entrepreneur, and that is something that was, um, I guess, constantly in the back of my mind. But it took a while for the timing to be exactly right. So maybe five years later than I would have liked it to be, but nevertheless, that's how it happened. So you always felt like you were going to be your own boss. I mean, you know, starting off as a taxi driver, that's your own boss in many ways as well. So do you feel like potentially you're unmanageable? From a young kid, do you think, uh, oh, you know what, I'm just too independent, I'd be a pain in the ass. I think that anybody who's greatly skilled or talented or in any field of endeavor is unmanageable. And it's it's an art to keep them together. It's some one of the things that I had a uh, challenge going through in my own life. Holding a team together is one of those things that is a skill you just pick up experientially. A classic case in point would be a Man City. You know, we are sponsors of Man City, so it's amazing to us to watch Pep in action. Mm. And what he's able to pull off, heads off to the man. Yes, a lot of uh, a lot of individuals playing collectively is quite an impressive, uh, quite an impressive feat. And often football managers and teams get compared often. And Alex Ferguson is uh, one of the most cited managerial success stories that they teach at Harvard Business School. Apparently, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. So you know, you talk about potentially being unmanageable, but you work for years as an information uh, systems engineer. So how is that useful to you in the next stage of your progression? Initially, very important for it connected me onto the platform upon which I wanted to build a business, which is essentially e-commerce. So I was a lot more prepared for it than most in that sense of the word. I saw the oncoming nature of the global village and uh, believed in it. It was the gamble that I took that we would eventually get to this point where the world would be a lot smaller than it ever was. So in that sense of the word, understanding e-commerce, understanding the IT behind it and so on and so forth was very valuable. But as we progressed, there were a lot of other skills that had to, that had to come into play. Well, we're going to learn about some of those skills uh, in the next few minutes. But as the author of six books, I'm sure you're very much an accomplished writer, but... This is where we take you into your Blinkist moment. If you're familiar with Blinkist, they do all the summaries. Mm-hmm. So are you able to share your professional journey in under 10 minutes? If we gave you a 10-minute window, the story of Vijay Ezeran, as summarized by you in the abridged version, how would you share it? For a start, I, I was on a full scholarship in Singapore, in university in Singapore. That was my beginning, in college, pre-university, actually. And instead of accomplishing what I set out to do, I got involved in the student politics as president of my students' union and um, took the liberty of taking a few pot shots at Lee Kuan Yew, the prime minister at the time. Bold. <laughs> a little too bold, perhaps. Yeah. So I was marched to the border, so to speak, and told that this is not acceptable, and I, I lost my scholarship. Ended up with my uh, dad sending me to the UK at a cost of uh, whatever he could scrape together because being a government servant, it was tough on him. So I landed uh, here running, as it were. Because... Was he like, don't insult Thatcher as soon as you get there? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Thatcher caught me by surprise. I got here, paid my fees, and I was already at University of Reading ready to start when Thatcher took power. And uh, she just turned the whole thing around. You know, my fees went up ballistically. It was something that we couldn't afford, so put me back on the road, so so to speak. And I um, decided that I would start driving a cab while studying accountancy, something that I hated with a passion. So that was a whole year spent in that. And there were some adjustments that allowed me to apply for a Commonwealth grant. And that's what I got to go back to university. So it was always something that I designed or planned, but rather, as I put it, no flaws in the master plan. 
something led me along the way. So not getting into law school put me to study economics instead. And not going into Singapore brought me to London, which I think was great. And then I took a whole year off after university and bummed around Europe. Funny, because English people bum around Southeast Asia. So it's good to <laughs> see that swapping. <laughs> I actually bummed around Southeast Asia and found myself on my birthday in Kuala Lumpur, of all places. So it's nice. good, good to see that uh, common swap that people do that over in Europe too. Yeah, I uh, basically, in those days, we call it hitchhiking. You know, they call it backpacking these days, but uh, I relied on my rail card and uh, basically hitchhiked wherever I couldn't uh, travel by train. And I basically traveled all the way from London to Athens over a four-month period and spent almost a year on the road thereafter, working my way throughout Europe, ending up in Assisi, central Italy, where I ended up in a monastery, a Franciscan monastery, where I decided that I would be a lay monk for a while. As you do, obviously. <laughs> this is what most most people, when they're uh, taking a year off work, end up doing, right? Like, screw the alcohol, let's definitely go and find ourselves in a monastery and get holy. Well, I spent a long time sleeping on park benches and working my way through farms and hospitals and, you know, wherever I could, construction sites, wherever I could get a job. And then when I ended up in Assisi, it was the peace and the quiet and it was the entire ambience of that place that just caught me. And I felt drawn to the place. St. Francis of Assisi is one of my favorite saints. And plus the fact it was a vegetarian monastery. And being vegetarian myself, I fit in perfectly. So I was there for a little bit shy of three months or so, maybe two and a half months or so. But interestingly enough, it, it covered the period of Lent. And during Lent, everyone in Assisi, especially the monks and lay monks included, observe a period of silence. So it was 40 years of silence, and I struggled with that. I spent a week being caught out, as it were, because there were monks that did nothing else but catch you out with a little comment here and there, you know, buongiorno, signora, and you immediately you answer, and you're caught, and you end up doing some penance. So after seven days of doing that, I said to myself, I'm going to do this, and I actually went through 33 days of silence. I think that was a turning point in my life. That's exactly when I, you know, people might call it by different terms, I would say I found myself. I actually started taking life as per se seriously because when you can't talk, you start going inward. It's, it's more introspective. You get up every day and, and your mouth is actually your outlet. Now, when that shuts you off from the world, it's, you're forced to actually do a lot of retrospection, a lot of introspection, a lot of reading and a lot of writing, a whole bunch of writing. So that 33 days was a new journey for me. I came out of it, stopped my rambling, so to speak, uh, went back to work. And then I basically ended up going to the States, where I spent the next seven years doing information systems as my major, and then ended up working for IBM, and then came back to my part of the world. How old were you at this point? I was 28. Okay. And the juxtaposition of uh, being silent in Italy and then going somewhere like America where everyone feels compelled to speak their mind about everything all the time. What was that like for you as someone who's now travelled through different parts of the world all the way as far west as you could get? It was a learning curve. I would say that it was finding that balance in between that brought me to where I am. Admittedly, being in the American system, the university of, uh, system that is, uh, made me stretch out a little bit more. You know, you are in inadvertently pressed into positions where you are needed to be an extrovert. You need to speak up a lot more. In fact, public speaking is one of the requirements for a degree program. And, you know, that's when I found myself actually realizing I had an additional skill, so to speak. But the silence kept me grounded. It kept me balanced. And it's something I've carried on from then till now. Every day, of my life starts with an hour of silence, sometimes even as long as three. But it's that process that allows me to take a day in a slightly detached manner. So America, you know, also gave me a sense of love for the free market. I was a, a avid disciple of uh, Milton Friedman, the economist from the University of Chicago, and loved the man, and uh, totally devoted to his concept of a global village something that I subscribe to. So when I came back to my corner of the planet and um, I met my wife in Sri Lanka, of all places, I decided that, you know, this is the Asian millennium. I saw the need for, uh, you know, 
the American innovation, if you like, and the synergy that I picked up in America and to bring that over here. And that's what got me kick-started in the Far East. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So before we get into that part, I just want to um, come back to the bit in America. So you mentioned this um, three hours of silence every day. I just want to clarify that's not a, a three hours sleep because you're so busy that you've only get, you only sleep three hours a day, but you want to project the idea that actually, no, you have a normal night's sleep, but then you're silent for three hours because someone with your success could be confused with someone who hasn't had time to sleep. So that is categorically you wake up in the morning and you're doing things, but you're doing them silently. So again, this is, this is separating it from meditation, for example. Oh, So you're busying your mind, but you're silent. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. It's usually one hour, but I, you know, on occasion need the three hours when I I go through a very hectic period. The more busy I become, the more important it is for me to take this period off. The way I describe it in my it's book. Like the Gandhi quote on then you should meditate twice as hard. Exactly. Yeah. I actually quote it in my book, The Sphere of Silence, uh, which has gone out now into eight languages. All of them silent. <laughs> exactly. In that book, I say you need to take one hour so you can take control of 23 hours. And that's really the process because people keep asking this question. I can't spare one hour. How do I spare that one hour? My answer is very simple. You need to spare that one hour, otherwise you're wasting 23. Hmm. Have you read Ray Dalio's latest book, Principles? I haven't yet, but I'll get around to it. It's similar in, in that sense. He says, you know, that he's, you know, so busy, etc., etc. but he always makes time to meditate ever since he went to India, actually. but I don't really meditate. Well, let me put it this but way. It's the same philosophy. I mean, yes, in, yes, you know, yes. the busier he is, the more he feels that that's what he needs to do. And you have to make the time because then the other 23 hours. Just because like uh, if you want to talk about meditation per se, meditation is something that you can't essentially force yourself into. In fact, the best way to meditate is to sit down there and say, I don't want to meditate. And just repeat that as a mantra. I'm not meditating. I'm not meditating. And before you know it, you'll get there. But the trick is to, first of all, keep yourself still. Be still is the first stage. Be still is being silent, in essence. I describe it essentially by calling the body the oldest scripture known to man, as since it was written in the hand of, by the hand of God himself. So if the body is the oldest scripture known to man and there is a language in this body, then one would observe that, you know, you have two eyes, you have a pair of nostrils, you have two ears, two parts to the brain, even the heart has two sections to it, two hands, two legs. I mean, literally the whole body is in pairs, primarily in pairs, except for one or two exceptions. 
the main exception being right bang slam in the middle of your face, your mouth. If you were to try to understand the language in, in which it was written, one interpretation would be observe twice as much as you speak, listen twice as much as you speak, breathe twice as much as you speak, work, you know, using your hands twice as much as you speak. I mean, literally do everything twice as much as you speak. But instead of which, you know, we do the exact opposite. And the mouth, which is only one, you know, the one instrument right in the middle of our face, works incessantly from the time you get up till you sleep. In fact, for some people, you continue when you sleep. Well, we're lucky that you actually chose to use your uh, one instrument today. Otherwise, it would have been a very quiet interview. <laughs> well, there would have been something new. It would have been something new. we could just pretend for other guests. We'd be like, oh, this guest loves, you know, this is his hour of silence. It's an unfortunate time to be interviewing him, but he won't have any, any responses to any of my questions today. But <laughs> I'm glad you chose to use it. So today, I guess you're using the concept of two lips instead because you're going double, double, double speed. Actually, if I could just... At this additional point. Please do. The concept is when we open our mouth to speak, it's like a waterfall. We flood the person in front of us so much so we inundate him with too much information. The trick is to be able to reduce what you want to say from 4,000 words to 400. And when you're really good at this, to 40. Now, the real masters, they do it in four. Does that make you an expert on Twitter then? <laughs> I think I tend to do a lot better when I'm able to see the people. Okay, well, speaking of this, no, no, we'll get to this because we haven't quite got to um, actually talking about QI Group, but I was about to bring up the convention, but we can come on to that afterwards, I think, because as I understand it, you know, that is where you feel most at home, really, in front of your audiences. But, you know, you didn't just leave America and go to Southeast Asia and then start the convention with passionate fans. I believe there was probably some hard work in between that created this absolute monstrously big organization and powerhouse, as we discussed, this marketing machine. So can you take us through that journey? And I think the thing that's really interesting for our listeners, so our listeners uh, tend to be people either already running companies with somewhere between 30 to 100 employees and scaling it up, or they're um, people slightly younger looking at uh, starting their own companies. What we try and stay away from in our interviews is pretending like this is easy because it's not. So it's great to hear from people once they're already successful but of course, what's important is speaking about the, the tough parts along the way. So can you share your story of the QI group, how you built it, but also with the ups and downs, the challenges, the real stuff? It's the downs that I remember the most. You can just share the downs, but let's make it <laughs> uplifting too. Well, you know, in essence, the company started primarily because it was uh, an obligation. We had been caught in a situation where, where we had a whole bunch of people, a couple of thousand of them who had trusted in us and believed in us in a venture that we had begun with leading up to that point where we started the company. But we had done it with a company that had actually come out to the Far East from Texas, from the U.S. Eventually, after we had started and built it to a group of about 15,000 strong, we started suspecting that something was amiss. In fact, my partner today, Japa, had to go down there to suss out these guys. And we found out the whole thing was essentially a, a scam. It was something that we were totally taken in by. So when we came back, we sat with this group. We went up on stage and met 1,000 of our leaders, brought them all together uh, and said, look, guys, we're really sorry, but this is what has happened. We will make it up to you. Whatever your losses are, we are here. We are going to pay it all back. And that was, we had actually put together, pulled all our resources, you know, begged and borrowed, put our monies together so that we could pay back this amount. And surprisingly, the thousand people in the room on that day turned around and said to us, leave alone who we started with. Really doesn't matter. We never knew them. It's you that we know. And we have been building this together for the last few months, and it's been phenomenally successful. And the trick is, can we do this now? Will you, you know, instead of taking this money and paying it back to us, can we now put it into a company? And we would be happy to follow you. We'll be your first customers. Based on that, because that took us all by surprise, the, the few of us, the four of us who were up on stage at that day, we had to sit and rethink. And the company began because of that. 
It was, in fact, an obligation, a trust. So I began with the concept of, okay, I'm going to build this company for about five years, and then I'm going to step aside, and my, my duty is done. So I committed to do exactly that. And the first first year of business, we just totally went through the roof. So what, what was the concept at the time? So for a listener that hasn't heard of your story and hasn't heard of the QI group as a whole, what was the initial proposition? What was the sort of roadmap? Did you have that mapped out at the plan? Or was it, you know, like a lot of businesses, an evolving masterpiece? Very much evolving. We did start off with three concepts in mind. We we merged together. We were disruptive even in our day. We brought together the concept of e-commerce platform so that the sales could be basically done all over the world, anywhere, so to speak, a global village. We brought together direct sales as the front end of it. So e-commerce platform, direct sales, and we also put together a courier company, it would be delivered to your doorstep. You could buy anything that you want, have it delivered to your doorstep, and you could have people who would buy and sell it and develop a business out of it. So all of these three concepts were put together, and it, that was the concept that the company started upon. And we looked upon, and I looked upon it, as empowering entrepreneurs, empowering entrepreneurship. Because what we were doing was we were giving them the full ecosystem for a business, for anyone who wanted to start one. So we started with a small range of products and today we have over a thousand. We are into a hundred countries. We have close to 18 million people in the network today. And we have about just over 1,200 employees. And where are they based? Scattered over five countries in Southeast Asia. But Malaysia being the head office country? Malaysia is the operational headquarters, finance and administration out of Hong Kong. And then we have graphic design and copywriting out of Bangkok, PR out of Manila and and so on, and legal out of uh, Singapore. Okay, so obviously, like a lot of entrepreneurs, this is a very common thing. You uh, expect five years later, I'm going to uh, step aside because that's basically what happens to everyone. And then magically in the sixth year, you're like, wait a minute, I'm still here. So how many, uh, how many more years of reflection did you realize that you were still, still in the business and that actually it had become very much part of you and that leaving wasn't quite as simple as you'd first forecasted? Well, yes, you're, you're spot on on that because um, we went way past five years. My wife and I had actually committed to each other that we would do this, you know, and that she would support me to do this to hit some, some goals that we set. Some, I, I would say at this point in time, humble goals. But they were met very early on. And we both realized this perhaps somewhere in our sixth or seventh year when we looked back and said, we hit everything we wanted. And then I realized that it wasn't about the money anymore. It was about actually making a difference. It was a legacy project that we were building, and we realized that there's so much good that we could do with it. One of the things that we had done from the very onset, from day one, was to set aside a certain percentage of our net for the purpose of giving back to the community, to the world at large. And we began with all kinds of charitable projects, building hospitals, looking into old folks' homes, you know, uh, children, etc., and so on and so forth. And that became something that actually became a fundamental part of the company today. Our crown jewel basically is a school that we run for special kids in Malaysia that I think uh, still today it fills my heart to be able to walk through that and see it happen. The university is, is a, a legacy project of ours. Yeah, when we began the university, uh, there were a lot of naysayers out there saying, this is not a way to make money. And I agree. It's been like the black hole of Calcutta. Mm-hmm. But today, as our first batch of medical students graduate last year, 47 of them, and uh, we sat there watching the entire event, it was heartwarming to say the least. So you've basically gone from professional entrepreneur to professional philanthropist. Is that fair to say? I would say you cannot do one without being, you know, without the other. I guess to do it right, you have to understand how businesses work. And obviously, as I understand it as well, running charities is extremely complex. So have you had 
a big adjustment in terms of your own professional development. Obviously, you've come from an experience of being wildly successful quickly at something that you could apply your skills to. And then you do that for a few years. And I guess like anyone, because you're human, ultimately, despite the silence, you will have got stuck in your ways because that's what we do as humans. Have you had to unlearn and relearn everything in a completely new approach by dealing with the charity world? Well, the charity is something that actually I would call it, you know, basically a social responsibility more than a charity. I think a company that lacks that initiative is one without a soul. It's actually, in a sense, doomed to failure. I think a lot of the companies that have begun within the last few decades, I've been able to identify with, have within their mandate something of this nature. To us, in particular, it has become part and parcel of our credo, as it were, which is why we chose Mahatma Gandhi as the icon of the company. If a company is just purely on profit, then it seems to be without a soul. So giving back to us is, is about being able to make a difference, you know, in the lives of others. When we started, we actually just gave the money away. It was the easiest thing to do. Write a check and forget about it. In a way, it assuages the conscience, maybe. And we realized also that it was not reaching the people it was intended to. Which is so often the case with charity. It is. I mean, when we actually broke it down into the numbers, I mean, we were looking at 20 cents on a dollar reaching the end person. And um, we decided to do it ourselves. So which began, you know, a, a list of things that we do right now from rebuilding schools in Southeast Asia. We are in Africa working with communities. Uh, women empowerment is one of our projects. We are also, you know, um, involved in IT labs, building that in Myanmar, etc., and so on. So when we are able to do this and we are able to actually go there and see the difference, it makes such a big difference. And it also, in a way, empowers us to keep going back. Now, in terms of disruption, it is important to me that there's a constant challenge within the company. So I've set up certain rules within the company that continue till today. One of them would be primarily the issue of consensual management, which is a little bit of a drag because management by consensus slows the whole process down. But it is a process by which the second echelon is being developed. You see, because we're we are 20 years old right now. The next 20 years depends on another generation altogether. When you say consensual management, do you mean unanimous opinion? No. What I mean is that, that we seek the opinion, but it's not a decision. The decision-making process still lies with the people in authority, but they are required to seek everyone's input. So almost like running a mini-government. Exactly. So the, well, the process... with a better system. <laughs> well, the system, I think, for us has been something we have learned by trial and error, if you like. But one thing we have been able to do is we have brought up a lot more people because people have a sense of empowerment by being involved in the decision-making process. Oh, my opinion is required is a major deal. For a lot of people, that's, that's a sense of job satisfaction that actually changes the name of the game for them. We have a lot of people within the company that we have been able to work upon and develop and bring to the forefront. So let's talk about what you're currently doing now, because you're, you're a chairman now at QI. So presumably your responsibility is to make sure that your legacy is being protected, that the systems in place are being respected, that the next generation you've just spoken about that are going to run your company for the next 20 years are the right people and there are checks and balances in place. But you're also involved in a lot of philanthropical work. So... How do you spend your time? What does a typical day look like for Vijay when you're not in a studio in London seeing the wonders of Uber as opposed to the knowledge in a black cab? <laughs> well, I start off generally with the first hour is uh, something that I refer to as a sphere of silence. And uh, I just sit down there and contemplate on what I'm going to be doing today, looking back on all of the challenges of the week before, etc. and so on. So there's a lot of planning that happens. It's actually a very busy time for me. It's just that I'm not talking. So planning, writing, scripting, whatever. 
and answering emails. All of that happens for the first couple of hours. So, so to, be, to be clear, you do all of that stuff whilst you're silent? Yes, totally. Okay, that sounds incredibly productive, to be fair. I might have to uh, take take you up on this suggestion. <laughs> it, it actually sharpens the mind. In, in, in Sanskrit, we call the first hour of the day Brahma Muhurta which basically means the time of creation. Your mind is the most fertile. It's the most versatile at that moment. And you actually create at that moment. You innovate at that moment. And that's a time where things get initiated. So my first few emails or messages that I send out in the morning is the one that changes the course of things. I mean, people come into work expecting the first blast of messages from me, which sets the pace for the day, so to speak. And do you make sure that you stay you stay to type? So do you purposely throughout the rest of the day just send worse and worse emails? So at the end of the day, they're like, oh, God, it's five o'clock and Vijay sent me an email. There's nothing in this one. I'm not even going to open it. <laughs> Well, um, actually, most of it happens, I would say a great percentage of it happens in the early part of the day. But as we progress along the day, I get involved into meetings myself. So, you know, I'm either into meetings or heading to one. So it's a, it's a little bit less intense, so to speak. But uh, they do get messages from me progressively through the day as well. Okay. And so talk to us about the convention. What is that? It has become, it's taken a life of its own. Initially, it was just meant to be a conference, a meeting of all our customers, which uh, initially over the last 20 years has developed. It's, it has become uh, more than a meeting. It has become, in a sense, almost uh, for the customers, it has become like a pilgrimage almost. You see, because we are, in essence, spread over so many countries. We are in 100 countries. And although we have a presence in about maybe 30 of them, it doesn't mean they can see us, feel us, and touch us. In order to see, feel, and touch, they actually have to come to a conference of this nature. And there's already a lot of activity going on between us and them throughout the year in terms of, you know, my thoughts of the day, my messages, this, that, and the other, through social media, this, that, and the other. But to actually see, feel, and hear us, they have to come to one of these two conferences, one in Dubai and the other one in Penang every year. So this one, the one that's just over, we had 20,000 people, nearly 90 countries from across the world. It's like a veritable United Nations. It's a place where, in a sense, that we are able to prove that the world can come together as one. No caste, no color, no creed, no country, no culture, no nothing bars us. We come Sounds together. like John Lennon would have loved it. He would have. And as we do we. I mean, I, I totally buy into what John Lennon was saying. At the end of the day, we create the divisions that lead to where we are today. And how long is it? Two to three days? It's five days, four, four nights and five days. Okay, and what happens throughout the course of the four or five days? Is it business and networking and spirituality and everything, you know, all merged into one? Or how do you sort of envision it? Well, what's your perspective when you go there? How do you see it? Well, we have three things that we don't talk about on stage. Religion being one, politics being the other, and sex. Apart from that, you know, everything is game. So, so it's we, not like the UN? No, no, no. <laughs> but we do, in a sense, maintain a certain code. The company is vegetarian. And therefore, during the conference, that's five days where 20,000 people keep vegetarian. So am I. It sounds like somewhere I'd actually be able to eat for once. Yeah, so we, we do provide food, in, you know, in, in the facilities and so on and so forth. So the reason being we are in line with Gandhi's teachings, which is ahimsa, non-violence, uh, in a sense. And it's our way of giving back to the world and to the planet, non-violence being our credo. Then they're actually with us from 8 a.m. onwards. They, they start queuing by 5 a.m. By 8 or 9, the program begins and goes on till 1 a.m. every night. I start about two, three hours before the end, and I close the, every single day. Presumably these are your speaking slots, I hope. Yes, <laughs> yes. It is It is actually very exciting for me. I call VCon coming home. What kind of stuff do you talk about? Give us um, an example of, it was, it was a couple of weeks ago, was it not a few weeks ago? Yes. Yeah, so what, what did you share in your, as a summary, what did you share in one of your uh, three-hour slots? Well, this time it was basically, you know, we had a credo, which was basically one purpose, one planet, one people. And we were bringing the whole, you know, world together. One of the things that I spoke about was living in the now. Live in the moment. Because in essence, 
we tend to spend too much time looking backwards into our mistakes into our and regretting and 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 I basically call depression condition that only favors people who have the time now if you go really go down to the peasants the people who are surviving for a living so to speak they don't have time to be depressed you know it's the rich kids the people who have you know food on the table that want to you know sit down and get depressed so keep your life live in the moment be free and this is the type of concepts that we speak about entrepreneurship is another thing that i speak about i keep reminding them that in essence uh, going back 3 or 4 generations there was no such thing as 9 to 5 employment for a thousand years prior to that we didn't actually get employed in the sense that we do now universities are not in those days degree factories they were actually destination by themselves you know there were places where you go to spend your life in learning so in essence this has changed so in the course of it being changing we lost our independence we lost our freedom we lost our freedom and our belief in ourselves so this was something i felt very important to impart on to them because in the emerging markets a great number of them in fact almost all of them were colonies and being colonized robs something out of you it is a mental state of mind and it is something that we need freedom from so i spent a lot of time explaining to them that for a thousand years prior to this you were free you thrived despite it and you can be again so it's a mindset that i'm working on i think as you know as an example you mentioned singapore singapore is a great example of what you can do with a country if you focus on sets of rules and just working really hard towards a single vision china is obviously a much bigger version of execution beyond all means and if you look in even in america someone like elon musk who just explains the simple maths of well if you work 18 hours a day and are really passionate you're going to be more successful than someone working 12 hours a day and really passionate so there's different ways obviously to present it i think it's a really interesting thing which is balancing your message of hustle and passion against also a counterculture which is coming up a lot as well about giving people you know space and time and freedom you know you talk about depression that does obviously as you just pointed out tend to be something that's more prevalent in first world countries as an example so it's a very interesting topic to be touching upon do you tend to find that there's um, a lot of pushback from western participants of your conferences compared to eastern participants yes but let me begin by saying something i mean uh, with regards to mr musk my counter to that is when you love something when you love something it's not work anymore so if you're working 12 hours or 18 hours you're working yourself you know to the bone that is where stress and everything else kicks in but you when you love what you do then you never work a single day in your life and the, the second thing that i'd like to point out to you is that with regards to you know entrepreneurship per se it is in essence i feel in the heart of every human being it's something that needs to be tapped and and brought up to the surface in asia for instance hong kong is a better example than singapore and not just because you got kicked out of university <laughs> well i i still have a home in singapore and i still consider it you know a lovely place to go to but however having said that hong kong in a sense is a rock that rebuilt itself and at the time of joining back into china it doubled china's foreign reserves with 6 million people had been able to build up a foreign reserve of 100 billion dollars which was the total of china's foreign reserves at the time so if 6 million people on a rock at the end of the sikiang river could actually build that kind of an economy it was because of their ability to trade their ability their entrepreneurial spirit as it were now the 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 spirit is seen if you if you do a survey of university students coming out of the best schools in in the us even and and europe and even for that matter in india or many of the colonies you would find that a lot of these students actually come out and they are looking for the ideal job the job seekers and this is uh, unfortunately a mindset that has been programmed and designed into the in, into the psyche so they come out saying okay i want to work for ibm i want to work for google or yahoo or mike or whatever you know a silicon valley and this is my dream and that for i end up working for rest of my life talk to kids coming out of hong kong shanghai and taiwan and korea and ask them 
what do you want to be in five years or 10 years when you want to graduate? And they would say to you, I want to have a company with 100 people working under me, more often than not. And that is a job creator attitude. It is, but it's also a super interesting cycle because if everyone becomes an entrepreneur, there are no jobs and no one's working for anyone and you get a very individualistic society. So it's really complicated because actually, you know, we've had this conversation before with other other founders and you have this realization that, uh-oh, if, <laughs> if I encourage everyone to become an entrepreneur, I'm not going to have anyone to help me build my vision. <laughs> it's going to be lots of companies of one. Well, here's, here's, here's the deal. I think that um, more often, you see, in China or even for Hong Kong for that matter, there are a lot of traders. It's not it's not everyone who turns out to be a Jack Ma, but you have traders who refuse to give up their freedom. They would rather sit on a sidewalk and peddle their wares as opposed to go out there and work for nine to five. It's a mindset. Absolutely. And it's a mindset that actually, you know, gives them a raw kind of energy. Just step onto the streets, be it New York or Hong Kong, where, you know, uh, there's a major difference to stepping on the streets in Beijing, for instance, as opposed to Hong Kong. You feel it from the moment you walk out on the street. Everybody is in a rush to go somewhere, and they're so very focused to do that. When you look at the Monday morning crowd in most cities across the world, it's the rat race they're going back to. You know, they're dull, the demeanor's down, they're not really... Take a look at Hong Kong. We interrupt this episode to invite you to enjoy a moment of calm. I'm Tamara Levitt, the writer and narrator of the meditations in the Calm Map. Amidst the chaos and busyness of life, it's so important to pause. The calm and clarity we gain through meditation is an essential part of what makes a great leader. So take a moment now to close your eyes and bring your attention to your breath. Inhaling deeply and exhaling slowly. Feel your lungs expanding and contracting. And as you take this next breath, feel your whole body relax. And then, when you're ready, open your eyes. To learn more about the Calm app, visit calm.com slash secretleaders for a one-month trial. And now, back to today's guest. So... We're going to have to start wrapping this up now because fortunately and unfortunately, a lot of my pertinent and important questions you've already just answered uh, more clearly than most guests do by this point. But some final questions to wrap up. The one that everyone hates, I'll start off with that one because you look far too comfortable. How would you describe yourself? Well, I am someone who's trying to make a difference. I've learned a lot from the mistakes that I made along the way. Perhaps I've, I've spent a great deal of my life in endeavors that uh, didn't pan out too well, but it was my learning curve. And today I'm here in a position where I can make a difference. So I am looking at making a difference and creating a legacy before I leave the planet. So how would your wife describe you? Uh, again, Not as quiet in the morning as he makes out. <laughs> <laughs> no, she she knows about the morning. That's an idiosyncrasy we have had uh, you know, in our marriage since 28 years now we have been married. I think the best way that I would like to think is that I let me describe her, and I think she would, in in a sense, uh, have the same thoughts about me. Uh, she is my my guide, my friend. She is both in many times, in many ways, my support. She has been also my muse. She has uh, initiated thought processes in my, in my mind. She challenges me. Having her by my side has been the best gift that I could have ever had. Well. Speaking of gifts, can you provide a gift to our audience with some wise words that you've been told along your journey that really had an impact on you? I remember the words of Mahatma Gandhi that rings in my head. It's uh, something that's propelled me over the years. I'd be disappointed if you didn't quote him at this point, to be honest. So, 
In simple words, he would say, live today as if it were your last, but plan today for a hundred years. Beautiful. And now, for your own wise words for our audience. We don't expect it to be as poetic, don't worry. (laughs) I would say, again, repeating what I said a little while ago on stage to 20,000 people, live in the now. The now is all that you have. Tomorrow is a dream. Yesterday is already gone. The only control you have over your life, over everything that you do, is in now. Tomorrow depends on now. Your life is just in the now. Well, thank you very much, Vijay, for some wise words. And if you've just ended the episode with these powerful words, go and carry on your day with these powerful words in mind and let us know what it's like tomorrow for you. Thank you very much, Vijay. Thank you, too. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. Find that thing that really makes you tick. It doesn't always have to be a business, but just find the thing that makes you really fulfilled. Don't be scared of the discipline that needs to go around that creativity, because otherwise, if all of us were just being creative without any discipline, it would be a very different place. And the last thing is go find the opportunity. And actually, as society... I believe our responsibility to the next generation is to provide those opportunities for them. That was Joe Malone, CBE, the founder of everyone's favourite Joe Malone and now Joe Loves. From growing up in a council estate with a rough childhood leaving school at 16 to becoming a world-famous perfumier, candle maker and high street staple everyone loves. To hear how she did it, tune in or you'll miss out. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes or Spotify. Just search for Secret Leaders. You can also check out our website at secretleaders.com for show notes and behind the scenes of each interview. Hi, I'm Simon LaFosse, the founder of LaFosse Associates. We're a young, high-growth and co-owned business, and we're experts in attracting talent. If you want to build a great team or you just want advice, please get in touch. We run free seminars and we'd love to see you there. Thanks for your time. This episode was hosted by Dan Murray, produced by me, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton at Lower Street Media. And if you're hearing this, that's probably thanks to Jennifer Osman, our marketing whiz from Canada.